like you to turn to James chapter 5. This morning, we're going to read the text that we're going to deal with today. James chapter 5, and verses 19 and 20. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Amen. Well, as you notice... These are the last two verses of the book of James. Here we are at the end of this amazing adventure uh, through the letter to the scattered church. It's been quite a journey, hasn't it? I know it has for me, and that is usually the case when you are a preacher. If you do justice to the text by engaging with it, in the hard work of study and prayer and then allow the Holy Spirit to personally apply it to your own heart, you will at one point or another be challenged and dare I say even wrecked. Word of God does what the Word of God always does. It either afflicts the comfortable or it comforts the afflicted. And as I said in the very first message in this series, I will warn you from the start, it is not for the faint of heart. James will leave no stone unturned in regard to your faith and mine, not one. And he hasn't, has he? It's a book which will challenge the reality of our faith. It will test its resolve, its integrity, its authenticity, its stability, and its practicality. It will ask all the hard questions and push us to the mat so that we may emerge knowing whether or not what we say we believe, we actually believe. And here, at the exit gate, as it were, we are no less confronted with these two verses. James, the Lord's brother, being guided in his words by the Holy Spirit, leaves us with his parting exhortation. It's not the typical New Testament closing to a letter. There are no greetings given. There are no people mentioned, no customary benediction with gracious words of grace and peace pronounced. With characteristic abruptness, in the original language, by the way, this is just one sentence, James calls us to yet one more point of action before he closes out and we wave goodbye to him and he feels like waving goodbye to an old friend. Although sometimes the words of a friend are a little bit hard to hear. And that is keeping with James's style. This letter, as we've seen, is loaded, loaded, loaded with correctives and commands. There are, in fact, more verbal imperatives per word in James than in any other New Testament book. That's because for James, faith on the front line is faith that functions. It works. It's active. And it is active not only out in the world, but also here in the church. That's precisely what this text reminds us of. Look again at the text. Let me read it to you this time from a different version. This is the New Living Translation. 
My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. In essence, this is James's answer to the question first posed by Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verse 9, which we all may have asked at one point or another in our Christian life, am I my brother's keeper? Well, says James, in this sense, yes, you are. But not only does it bring the responsibility home personally, it also makes us realize that it is a responsibility we share as a community. The ministry of spiritual restoration is the responsibility of the Christian community. That's what James is saying here. And with that responsibility comes James's injunction to carry it out with incredible care. And when we do that as a church, responsibly, lovingly, tenderly, and carefully, and it is, it is willingly received and spiritually accepted by, by the person that it's aimed at, there is this incomparable result, James says, of restorative blessing and transformative forgiveness. And that is what we all need. And indeed, that's what most people's souls long for, isn't it? Why? I'll tell you why. Because in the telling words of the hymn writer, Robert Robertson, all of, Robertson, all of us are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God we love. So the first thing James reminds us of here in this text is that the importance of personalization. Look at verse 19 again. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth. Here's a personal assumption here. James, for a one last time, addresses his people warmly and intimately, calling them, see it? My brethren. My brothers and sisters. My dear brothers and sisters. And he's looking at the church as a community. This is a community responsibility that he's aiming these words at to, to, to highlight. If there is any among you, he says, among you, he's talking to professed believers here. He's addressing this entire letter and no less this conclusion to the Christian community at large, not simply its leaders and not to those outside the faith, it is a sympathetic concern for each other that he is advocating for here. This is a family affair. We are family. Brothers and sisters who name the name of Christ together. And we are responsible for each other, James says. We really do not have a choice. We are our brother's keeper. Now, this is a pastoral call to watch out for each other, not as self-righteous inspectors or campus police, so to speak, but as loving siblings concerned for each other's spiritual welfare. We're not called to be the spiritual KGB, after all. 
We're called to be fellow Christ followers, traveling the road of faith together, arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder. As Clayton says, shoulder time. We have shoulder time. And he begins with a very hypothetical situation here in this text. If any among you strays from the truth. Now, the language of James here implies that it is indeed hypothetical, but given the list of issues that he's addressed throughout the entire letter, and you remember all those issues, right? It is indeed a very plausible situation. And this text also begs us to ask some very difficult questions of ourselves, like, are we beginning to wander? Am I a wanderer in need of course correction? And if so, who will correct me? Is there someone I see that has wandered off course and is heading for the ditch myself? Will I reach out to rescue them? Or will I just leave it to somebody else to do? Some people think, well, isn't that the pastor's job? James is here highlighting the value of every individual soul in the community, that none should be lost, and also the responsibility of every single Christian in the community. Straying from the truth, my friends, can happen to any one of us given the right set of circumstances. Is that right? James is not, I believe, referring to evangelism here in this context, but rather restoring someone who has professed a faith in Christ and is in danger of turning completely away from that truth of living in and living for Christ. The word straying or wandering here is closely associated with the idea of deception and delusion in the scripture. It's it's used in contexts that are clearly at odds with Christian living. Let me just give you a couple of verses that this same word is used in. 2 Timothy 3.13, it says, But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Those two words, deceiving and being deceived, are the same root word here, come from the same root word. Titus 3.3, for example, says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, that's the word, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 2 Peter 2.15, speaking of false teachers, Peter says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. That's the word again. Having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. So the way that this word is most often used is with the idea of being caught up in deception or delusion. And we can deceive ourselves, can't we? The truth that James refers to here is most likely not strictly limited to correct doctrine, although it includes this, but rather all that is involved in the gospel and Christian living. This is also not necessarily a wandering in the sense of casual sinfulness, but he's talking about any deviation, whether major or minor, but it's a deviation nonetheless, according to the text, 
That is serious enough, this deviation, to warrant spiritual death. Look at what it says in verse 20. If you turn that person back from the error of his way, you'll save his soul from death. In other words, that must be pretty serious, right? This deviation. And it's ultimately a willful deviation. Wandering, observes Alistair Begg, takes place individually, gradually, and willfully. It's an inside job. Every deviation is our own deviation. We have to own it. You can't blame it on anything or anyone else. We make the choices that determines our pathway every single day. And it's always all the little choices that compound that get us kind of off the track and where we end up in the ditch. This is what James was referring to earlier in his letter in chapter 1 in verses 14 and 15 where he says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by what? His own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth what? Death. See, this is serious business James is addressing here. The wanderer in this case is someone who is willfully distancing themselves from Christ. It usually begins when a person starts to depart in their minds from the things of truth. James identifies this very clearly in verse 19. I'm sorry, verse 20 as the error of his ways, the error of his ways, not Christ's ways. This is the contrast. The contrast James sets up here is between truth and the error of his ways, the wanderer's ways. Now, it is a way. It's a pathway. Jesus identified it as the broad way. The wide way. It's the eight-lane highway that eventually leads to destruction, moving with the traffic of the rest of the world, as opposed to the narrow way, the Savior's footpath that leads to life. That's what Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 says. And you know, this, this deviation, this this, this way is relatively easy to spot. You find that you don't read your Bible like you used to. You don't even want to. You don't pray as often as you used to. Maybe you begin to shift doctrinally and the telltale phrase on a person's lips that are going in this direction is, well, I've changed my view on God on that issue. I no longer see it that way. Now, sometimes that's good, but when it's coupled with all this other stuff that leads a person off the track, it's not good. And inevitably, the next shoe to drop is the moral one. A person then begins aligning themselves more with the unbelieving world than the church, engaging in activities characteristic to the old life, excusing those activities is not really sinful. That is a huge warning sign, by the way, right there. Again, Alistair Begg describes people in that state as reconfiguring God in order to accommodate their sinful proclivities, unquote. 
Now, the signs of a wanderer are inevitable and identifiable. A person's language begins to change. Church attendance and small group involvement begins to fall off. And the next thing you know, that person's life becomes more and more devoid of all that Christ stands for and is becoming painfully and dangerously close to spiritual apostasy. That's the complete turning away from belief in Christ that you once professed. And you might be thinking, well, can somebody do that? Yes, you can. We're going to get to that in a minute. Spurgeon put it like this in his classic book, The Soul Winner. Every error has its own outgrowth as all decay has its fungus. Spurgeon had a way with words. <laughs> he continues, when truth is dominant, morality and holiness abundant. But when error comes to the front, godly living retreats in shame. Did you get that? The best way, Spurgeon also said, to avoid going downhill is to stay off the slope. This wandering from the truth, says James, is serious business, and we as a community of believers must take it seriously. The personal assumption here is that it is a community deal. It's a community deal, but it is also our individual responsibility to help rescue the ones that are wandering off. It says, if any among you stray and one turns him back. See that? One turns him back, let him know or her know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 and verses 12 through 14 really kind of highlight this. Take care, brethren, the writer says, again, take care, brethren, that... There not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For if we have become partakers of Christ, for we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end... That verse, verse 14, deserves a lot of meditation. We're going to get to that topic a little bit more in a few minutes. So we have this personal assumption. It's a community thing. Then we have a personal assurance in verse 20. Again, uh, James, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death. Let him know. It's a strong word, that word know. Recognize, understand, mark this, that if you see your brother or sister wandering off course and you turn him back, you have saved their soul from death. God will use you to do it. God does the saving. God uses you and me. So know the seriousness Know the ramifications. 
know how important and critical this is to the community of faith that we each play our part and take action because you may save a life. I have to confess. Seems like I'm doing a lot of confessing to you in this book. I have to confess that I haven't necessarily been real good at doing this. Always. Actually, the church at large is not that good at it either. We err most often in one of two ways. Either we don't do it when we should or when we do do it, we do it all wrong. The tension between righteousness and mercy is a difficult one to negotiate. And we rarely do it well. And so we often avoid doing it at all. We tend to view this ministry of restoring a straying brother or sister like a trip to the dentist's office. Let me explain. We know from the, that we are meant to go, and when we get there, we know that we are meant to open our mouths, but we are rather afraid that when we do, extremely unpleasant and painful things will happen to us, right? And so given the choice between restoring the straying brother or sister and a dental appointment, well, we'd rather go to the dentist. It's true, isn't it? Tactfully and lovingly redirecting a person who has wandered from the truth back on course. It's one of the most difficult tasks in the work of our faith. So we don't tend to want to do it, and so we don't tend to do it. However, James concludes that that is not acceptable in the body of Christ. He says we must do it. We must do it. And, you know, here's the deal. By the time this kind of stuff gets to the pastors, it's usually pretty bad. I heard a pastor say, it's like all the eggs are smashed in on the floor. And then somebody comes and wants the pastors to scoop that all up and put it all back together again. It's like nearly impossible at that point. But how it usually works is, is that somebody in the body knows what's going on in their close friend's life or somebody else's life, but they don't say anything. And somebody else knows, and they don't say anything. And by the time it gets to the pastors, it's so far gone that it's nearly impossible to easily, easily address. You know, Ezekiel's ministry was all about this call to repentance to a nation wandering from God when he was commissioned as a watchman to issue these striking words. In Ezekiel 33, we read these words. God says to Ezekiel, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? This was Ezekiel's commission. This is what he had to carry as a ministry burden. And if he failed to carry out that charge, this is what the Lord said would happen to him. In Ezekiel chapter 3, 
Verse 16, at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, I have appointed you as a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you better warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. That's serious business. Yet if you have warned the wicked and he does not turn from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered yourself. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I place an obstacle before him, he will die. Since you have not warned him, he shall die in his sin, and his righteous deeds which he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. However... If you have warned the righteous man that the righteous should not sin and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning and you have delivered yourself. Wow, that's scary stuff. I'm glad I wasn't Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And it doesn't work quite the same way in the New Testament for sure, but we have a similar charge here in James in principle. We have a responsibility toward one another. Parents with their children, husbands and wives, friends to friends. And we must strive to do it well, to do it right, to do it properly. You know why? Because the stakes are frighteningly high, frighteningly high. Look at what it says again. He turns a sinner from the error of his way that saves his soul from death. That's pretty high stakes. But when it's done well, the blessings, however, are abundantly full, aren't they? We save the person from spiritual death and we cover a multitude of sins. So the unwritten implication here from James between verses 19 and 20 is the power of the right prescription. The power of the right prescription. How are we to turn a person back from the error of his ways? That's the big question. How are we supposed to do that? Well, I think the scriptures are quite instructive in this regard, and we would do well to understand them because there is a right way and there is a wrong way that people engage in this kind of thing. And I think the best text to look at here is Galatians chapter 6. If you'd like to turn there and follow along with me. Galatians 6, the Apostle Paul gives us the proper way to approach a straying sibling when we care enough to correct them. Galatians 6, verse 1. Brethren, there it is again, brethren, Even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. 
Friends, this is not spiritual rocket science. When we care enough to correct, this is how it should be done. Wisely and maturely, not carnally and perfunctorially. And what I mean by that is like we have to do it, so therefore I'm going to go do it. Check the box. The tenor of Galatians 6, this text, is absolutely unmistakable. It's the tenor of a person who lives and walks by the Spirit of God. Look at what it says. You who are spiritual. This is a spiritual concern. Interestingly, but not surprisingly, it comes right on the heels of Paul's listing of the fruit of the Spirit describing what a person's life looks like when operating under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And what's that? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's what identifies a person as being, as Paul says here, spiritual. James, by the way, also identified this as, in, in chapter 3 of James, verse 17, as wisdom from above, right? 3.17. The wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. Doesn't that fit right in with Galatians 6? So you do it wisely and maturely. You also do it gently and skillfully, not forcibly or haphazardly. Verse 1 again, brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you are spiritual. Restore such a one in a spirit of what? Gentleness, meekness. You don't just jump right in and call the SWAT team of Matthew 18. You don't just do that. Because the rest of Matthew 18 follows 18.15. And what does 18.15 say? Matthew 18.15 says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. And sometimes that's a long process that should take place before you call in the SWAT team, so to speak. See, like skillfully mending a fishing net or gently resetting a broken bone, because that's the way this word restore was used in ancient Greek literature. That's what it really means. How would, how would you want a doctor to reset your broken leg? Gently? It takes gentle hands, doesn't it? On occasion, it may take a radical tug to get a dislocated bone back in place, but even then, gentle, careful, skillful mending quickly follows that. You don't manhandle a broken bone, do you? Isaiah beautifully said of Jesus that a bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. We need to do this gently and skillfully. Also, we need to do it humbly, not self-righteously. Again, chapter 6, 
of Galatians verse 1, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. You know what that smacks of to me? That smacks of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, why do you look in the speck that's in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that's in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye and behold the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That's that's what's being said here in Galatians chapter 6 each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Also, verse 3, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself, but each one must examine his own work. So we do it humbly, not self-righteously. And we do it caringly, not critically. Bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And your brother and your sister, by the way, is your neighbor. You might think they're your enemy, but Jesus even said to love them. You know, people can smell a judgmental spirit, vengeful spirit a mile and a half away, especially when they're in sin. If they bristle when someone tries to correct them in the wrong way, they know they're in sin. They don't need people to remind them of how bad they are. What they need is a gentle correction of someone who cares, someone that'll come alongside of them and say, hey, 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 where are you going, man? Where are you going? You're like heading right for that telephone pole in the ditch over there. I don't want to see you hit it. You ever have somebody in the car with you when you're driving a car and they think you're drifting off the road and they try to grab the wheel and correct it for you? It just makes the situation worse, doesn't it? You don't just grab the wheel. The old saying is true, you know, people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. And what they, what they are arrested by and taken by surprise with is a meekness and a love and a spirit of kindness and gentleness that approaches them. And again, like I've said, I I haven't always done this well. Usually the people who do this best are the people that have been deeply wounded themselves. They have come through the fire of personal learning and are better able to approach others in a spirit of compassion, grace, and mercy. You know, Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Mark Buchanan wrote that wounds give us Christ-like vision. But I think they open up all of our senses. Marshall Shelley in an editorial in Leadership Magazine tells of meeting the actor Bruce Marciano who plays Jesus in the film version of Matthew. 
Bruce told him about playing a scene where Jesus denounces and calls curses down on unrepentant cities. Woe to you, Chorazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida, if the miracles performed in you had been performed in Tyre or Sidon. They would have repented long ago. But I tell you, it would be more tolerable and bearable for you, for them, Tyre and Sidon, on the day of judgment than for you. Only the actor couldn't get the voice right. How does the Messiah, the only begotten Son of God, God incarnate, how would he speak words of doom and damnation? Marciano tells what happened. Quote, I was standing in front of 500 people, cast members, Moroccan extras, sound and lighting crews, and suddenly in a fraction of a second, something happened. He said, I'm not a mystical person, but what happened was so horrible that my heart actually broke. I saw people living their lives in ways that God didn't plan. The closest I can come to describing it would be what parents might feel if they look out the window and see their toddler walking into the street and a truck approaching. They scream for the child to come back, but the little one keeps going out into the street. Unquote. Marciano broke and he wept for an hour after that experience. And then he came back and he did the scene, pronouncing, woe to you, Corazon. And this time, he got the voice right. Mark Buchanan comments, I believe that through our wounds, the ones we give and the ones we take, God helps us get the voice right. He helps us to hear his voice in his word and he allows us when we speak his word to speak it with the right tone. With the anger of the beloved's heartache or the urgency of a parent's warning or the tender whisper of a father who wants his child home any time of the day or night dressed any way he chooses. See, we all know the difference, folks between a friend who corrects us with the wounds of love and a person who is on the hunt. Coming with a hunger for dominance and power and control over us. Charles Spurgeon again gives us the snarling, unbiblical picture of that kind of person when he said this. He said, I have known a person who has erred, hunted down like a wolf. And it will often happen that his fault has been blazed abroad, retailed from mouth to mouth and magnified until the poor erring one has felt degraded. The object of some professors seem to be to amputate the limb rather than to heal it. Justice has reigned instead of mercy. This is not according to the mind of Christ. That's why Spurgeon was considered one of the greatest preachers who ever lived. He got it. Chuck Swindoll gives us the biblical corrective to this. He said the person who intervenes in the life of a wayward brother or sister in Christ must be spiritual, gentle, wise, and humble. The fleshly, harsh, and arrogant have no business trying to rescue the wandering, though they are often the ones who try to do so. But when we do this in the proper manner, it is incredibly self-cleansing, isn't it? 
Because we must examine ourselves to see if there be any glaring error in us before we go and restore an erring sibling. And so we do it lovingly, not vengefully. Lovingly, not vengefully. And you know where we see this? Why do we start out telling people at weddings that they need to do this and then later on we forget all about this charge? that it's applicable in the church because 1 Corinthians 13 was not a wedding passage. This was a church passage. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 8, love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't keep records of that does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And we do it, so, so we do it lovingly, not vengefully, but we do it graciously and not conditionally. Graciously, not conditionally. And where do we see that? but in one of the most famous dissertations that Jesus ever gave in the parable of the prodigal, the returning prodigal in Luke chapter 15. When you and I attempt in that way to bring a brother or sister back from the error of his ways in the ways that I just described to you, and it works, that brother or sister returns, overarching all of it must be the cloak of grace the cloak of grace. We do not deny the truth of sin. We cannot compromise with that. But when it's finally turned from, the once erring person is now approached and covered with the robe of grace. Just like the father covers the returning prodigal with a robe. We do it as Jesus has shown us in the response of that lovesick father. And so this is all part of the blessings of restoration. The blessings of restoration in verse 20, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. My brothers and sisters, there is no question that this is one of the most difficult and unpleasant responsibilities that we have in the community of faith, in church. It's not pretty. It's not pretty. It's not popular. It's not easy. And frankly, it's rarely received well by the other party. But it's biblical and it's necessary. And it requires our tenderness and our prayerfulness and our gentleness and our relentlessness. It demands self-sacrifice from us. But the blessings that result from it as God works in both us and the one Wandering are worth the risk of being misunderstood, isn't it? Do you see the phenomenal accomplishments that come from fulfilling James's charge here? We will save a soul from death. Spiritual death is in view here. Is this possible for believers? Death is the result of sin. 
James's statement does not negate the idea of a believer's salvation being secure in Christ. This is not a threat to the security of salvation doctrine. What it does call into question is the wayward person's true spiritual state. A believer's security is known only to God and is corroborated in us by the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 says, the Holy Spirit witnesses with our spirit internally that we are the children of God. However, don't try to fool yourself into thinking that you can continually wander from the path of truth and still be okay in the end, that it's all covered by the blood. Disobedience wandering, and the Spirit's witness of God's ownership of you do not go hand in hand. Can I say that again? Disobedience, wandering from the truth continually, and the Spirit's witness that we are God's, those don't go hand in hand. To willfully turn away puts you in danger of apostasy and proves only that you were never really in Christ to begin with. I believe with all my heart that God will always complete the work of faith in us that he started. Philippians 1.6, I'm confident in this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I believe that, but the way that we end really identifies whether or not he actually started it. See, continuance in the faith is the test of genuineness of our faith. That's what it says. You can't get around it. That's what it says in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, meaning Christ, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, he's reconciled you now in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now comes verse 23, the one we always don't want to read. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. You hear what he's saying there? The Bible teaches the final perseverance of the saints, but it also teaches that it is only the saints that will finally persevere. I love David Platt's take on this text. He says, that God will make sure the saints persevere. And he includes James' text here to say that one of the ways that he makes sure is through this fulfilling of this charge in James. He makes sure through the community involvement of the church. When the church cares for one another and operates according to James's closing words here, it keeps people on the path. Make sense? In short, God uses community to accomplish eternal security as one way. So what's the application? When people engage in sin, they usually drop off in attendance. A drop in attendance in our gathering together usually results in a weakened state of community and susceptibility to moral decline. This is why Christianity cannot be lived effectively outside of community. God uses community to accomplish eternal security. 
We need each other to keep each other on the path. Amen? Keeping each other in check might save a soul from death. And he says at the end, it it covers a multitude of sins. James's words may be an allusion to Proverbs 10, 12, which says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. It may seem as if he's promoting this idea of overlooking sins, offenses, and actions against us in the interest of maintaining peace. That's not what he's saying. That is highly unlikely that James is saying that. He isn't suggesting hiding sins or keeping them in secret. The term is used in the Old Testament as securing forgiveness. That's what the term is used as in the Old Testament, the term cover. Psalm 85, 2, you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Psalm 32, 1, how blessed, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's a parallelism. Your sins are forgiven, they're covered. Peter used this same wording as a way of denoting God's forgiveness of sins as it is traditionally used in the Old Testament as well. In 1 Peter 4, 8, he says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. This is how the God the Father treats our sins. He does not call them out on us anymore. It's Satan that's an accuser of the brethren. It's not Jesus. It's not God. God says, I'll separate as far as the east is from the west. I'll cast them into the depth of the sea. You'll never hear them coming from my lips anymore. Can God forget anything? Of course he doesn't. He's God. He chooses not to bring them up. Chooses not to look at them. Chooses not to remember them. This is how God the Father treats our sins when we've turned from our wandering toward the blessing of salvation in Christ who shed his blood for us that our souls may be saved from death. Our sins completely covered, out of sight, out of mind. Isn't that the way the father approached the son in the prodigal son parable? Isn't it? Isn't that the way he implied we should approach those who have gone off the path and have finally come home? Shouldn't we be running out to meet them? Casting all of our inhibitions aside, warmly welcoming them home? We need to treat each other like that father. Right? Maybe some of you may not know what I'm talking about there, but in Luke 15, when he saw the son coming, well, he was still a long way off in verse 20. His father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he cuts him off and said, the father said to the slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put the robe on him. And this is what we should be doing with each other when one returns and turns back. We we take that robe and we wrap it around them. 
We wrap it around in this robe of forgiveness and care and love and concealing the shame of the sins that were committed, never to talk about them again, never to bring them up again or allow them to be subject to public scrutiny. We cover the person, wrap them in the robe of grace. Why? Because that person who has returned has already been wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. What does it mean to you to be covered by the blood of Christ? It means that we are clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Death averted, sins deleted, souls reclaimed. James's closing words are abrupt, but they are a summary of all that he has hoped to accomplish throughout his entire letter to turn the wayward and move them Godward. And you know what does that? The word of God does that. The word of truth does that operating in people's lives. I'd like you to bow your heads and close your eyes while I read Psalm 32. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sins, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with the songs of deliverance.